0: Not Quite Dead. A Gal Pal horror movie discussion podcast. We do deep dives on our favorite scary movies. And sometimes we just keep it shallow. I'm your host, Megan. I'm Kate. Get ready for all the spoilers.
1: I, I've only seen Hereditary once, and I have seen it on lists of people's favorite horror movies. And I uh, didn't quite understand why, I think, until I saw it again yesterday. Okay. To take notes,
0: yeah. Did you see it when it first came out in theaters?
1: I didn't see it in theaters. I bought it as a like double feature on Apple Um, I was like, what the hell? Everyone likes it. I should just watch it. And I did.
0: And it's so good.
1: It is good. It is good. But I don't think I realized how good it was the first time I saw it.
0: Uh, The first time I saw it was in theaters. I was really excited for it. It came out in 2018. And that was the year that we moved to Boulder. And I referred to that first summer as our summer of movies because that was in the heyday movie pass. Um, That company. Yeah. That company that like went bankrupt. Um, So they had this deal where you could pay 11 bucks a month per person and see unlimited movies. And so Mike and I went and saw a movie every week. It was amazing. (laughs) And so we saw hereditary and I remember seeing that movie on the big screen was so gutting and like hard and horrifying. It was like one of those full movie theaters. And so I couldn't like be in the safety of my home and like talking to Mike about (laughs) about what was (laughs) happening while we're watching it. Um, And when I left the movie, I remember feeling like, oh, this is a movie you have to watch multiple times. Cause I could, I, I I I caught a couple of things that first time, but it's also such like kind of a difficult movie to watch that it, it makes you want to rewatch it, but it really makes you want to not rewatch it at the same time.
1: Yeah. There are so many scenes where they're making you just look at the same thing for so long. And the longer you look at it, the more perverse it seems and terrifying.
0: Yes, totally. There's just like, it like will flash to something and you expect it to be one of those like jump scare kind of cuts where it's like a quick flash of something horrifying, but then it stays on it for, like, a couple of beats so that you're like, oh, I'm seeing every part of this horrible thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's like they make you – they put you in that spot. They make you want to cover your eyes, but it's too late. You've already seen it, and and you just keep looking at it. I, I'm thinking of, um, you know, when they – flash to Tony Collette's face with her like mouth agape
0: yes or, um,
1: you'll yeah. see a ghost in the corner and it's not quick and it doesn't move quick it just sits there staring at you just like you would do in your bedroom when you're little like
0: honestly T- Tony Collette should have won an Oscar for this movie I like I, I genuinely so. I genuinely believe that because she is so like that shot of her like Mouth agape, like silent scream, like is so iconic. It's such a good shot. And she is just like a kind of difficult, horrible character, but she's just so like wound up in her grief and anger. Um, it's just such a good performance. I feel like the acting in this movie is just incredible.
1: It's great. Yeah. The kids, Tony Collette is amazing. And, uh, it it really it really is a great film. I'm I'm excited to get into it with you.
0: Me too. So this is another um, A24 movie. We've got a couple of those this season because they're just such a powerhouse in independent movies, especially independent horror in the last ten or so years. Um, so I think that this is a really good example of a of an independent movie for us to d- dig into. Uh, directed and written by Ari Aster, um, who's great. He also did *Midsommar*. He's got he's got a couple movies under his belt, but it was really felt like *Hereditary* uh, broke him into the mainstream. I think it was honestly Tony Collette's face.
1: I remember thinking, like, I know this person. This movie is not necessarily an indie. It's just going to be another horror movie with a famous person in it. And uh, and wow, was I wrong. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when I saw Midsommar, you know, the the cover, let's say the marketing, I I didn't, it looked different to me. It looked not like a traditional horror movie, especially it takes place all day. But um, this movie kind of on the surface seems like it's going to be pretty straightforward.
0: What did you think the twist of this movie was going to be? the first time you watched it. Oh my God, Kate.
1: I have no idea. Let me think for a second.
0: All right. While you're thinking, I can tell you what I thought it was going to be. I thought that potentially all of the occult and demonic leanings in this movie were going to be a red herring and that it was just that the, the mom, Toni Collette, Annie, in this movie... Um, was actually going to have the same mental illness that her mother had, that she also had DID or potentially schizophrenia like her brother did. And all of these things were in her head and that she was going to just end up killing her family. That's what I thought was, I thought that that that's where it was going to go. I mean, the only way I could have seen it going
1: would have been for this to be made up inside of her head. You know, because that's, that's sort of what I assumed was happening going into it. I assumed this was just a ghost story, but not really a ghost story. And, you know, as soon as we uh, lose Charlie, I'm like, oh, wait, that w- that wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> uh-huh. So I, I really was just lost. Um, I didn't know where it was going to go as soon as that happened, which is very early in the movie. And so I think that's just how original I feel this movie is.
0: Oh man, that first act twist was so brutal and so good. And no, I saw this no. I saw this movie, okay. I saw this movie yeah. the Friday it came out. So I had no idea that there was like this major twist in the first like 30 minutes of the movie. And yeah, from that point on, you're just like, oh, um, this is a different kind of movie because yeah. you don't see anything that's as like gut-wrenching as that normally in a movie.
1: And again, like we get that scene, that long, drawn out scene of staring at Charlie's head uh, on the ground covered in ants, like for so uh, long. And it's, it's so, so excruciating.
0: It's, it's disgusting and horrifying. It's like everything that you like want in a horror movie. It's like, it's got a gross ad factor to it. But it's also just really unnerving. It's, almost, it's like the gross out factor is just used
1: really tastefully. Like, hey, this is what happened. We're not showing you anything that didn't happen. And this will actually come into play later in the movie. Like that head falling off is mm-hmm. important to the movie. It's not just gratuitous. Like nothing in this movie um, is gratuitous.
0: Yeah, there's, there's no spare part to this movie, which is pretty incredible because it's over two hours long. It doesn't feel that long. And it doesn't feel long because because it's surprisingly economical with like everything it's got going on in it. And I complain every single episode about only liking short horror movies. And this one, you don't even realize how long it is because it just is constantly moving and it's constantly giving you information that's going to be used later. It's like, it's fantastic. So we've,
1: we've jumped ahead to you know an important part of the story but we you know we could just kick off and and start talking about act one prior to that moment obviously you know somebody's head gets lost but uh before that happens in the movie um we learn about our characters and actually in the written opening kate
0: yes which i love i think that um the movie opens with an obituary which I think is a really clever technique here because it it tells you that we're we're leading off with the death and it gives you an overview of this woman's life and you don't really learn a lot. She is preceded in death by her husband and by her son um, and is survived by her daughter who's married with two children and other than that, there's not there's not a lot about this woman which kind of immediately ties into I think one of the Larger like motifs in this movie, which is this idea of like secrecy and like privacy that you see a lot, especially around uh, Annie's mom Ellen, who who had died. We're gonna
1: we're going in with this very surface level knowledge of this woman, and that's not even the half of it. And you're just gonna keep learning more and more and more about this family the deeper you go into this movie. So I really like how they start us off with just you know nothing. This is nothing about this woman other than like some stats.
0: And then we get this fantastic um, shot of a miniature of a, of a house. And as the, the camera pulls into this miniature, it transitions into their actual house.
1: I love that too. Obviously, you know, there's something going on here with that. We see that a lot throughout the movie. It's a really big motif like this representation of real life that isn't quite real life, um, but looks real or, or sleepwalking, you know, like thinking you're really there. There's a lot of that in this movie where you can't always tell what's real and what's made to look real.
0: So Annie is an artist and, and she's a very particular type of artist where she just does miniature um, reconstructions of scenes from her life it feels like you'd have to be fanatical. Like it is a, a completely obsessive hobby, not hobby. It's her career. It's, it's her art. But the like painstaking degree she goes to recreate every single element um, of her house in a scene is just really singular. And just, it felt really to me like this is how Annie controls her response to events in her life whether they were traumatic or not it's like she has a degree of control over it um and can mediate her own experience through through her artwork she like almost uses it as like a way to distance herself from it while like having total control over it
1: yeah i noticed that later in the movie after everyone's dealing with charlie's death that she has a reprieve she just goes and does her art and gets to vent somewhere and her no one else in her family really has that so annie is able to transfer her grief somewhere and shut everyone else out as the movie goes on
0: i liked the miniatures is also like a little like dog whistle for um things falling apart for her because she like at the beginning of the movie you see her with like all of these miniatures she's getting ready for a gallery show and it seems like she's made a ton of miniatures and has like a, them all like pretty far along and in good shape. Um, but she does have like these notes around that are just like, keep working. Like there's a deadline. And so it's very like real. It's like very real life to be like, don't fuck around. You've got a, you've got a deadline to make. Right. Yeah. And this
1: is also really ritualistic process for her that we see throughout the movie. The whole idea of a ritual is really, deeply embedded in this movie as you go through it. And so I thought this was the very first ritual that we actually see is her doing her artwork. We also see Charlie doing some drawings early on, which is sort of a ritual for her.
0: Yeah. Charlie with her, um, with her drawings and with her arts and crafts. Um, She's a very crafty little girl.
1: Very allergic to nuts. Extremely
0: allergic to nuts.
1: (laughs) They weave that in, but very nicely, I thought. I was like, that, that's good.
0: And she also, she loves being outside. She likes being in that tree house. And it always has this red glow. Yeah, they have this like tree house out in their yard. And as I was watching this movie, I was like, man, we keep hitting on the same like motifs and imagery and themes like over and over, which is just that their house is beautiful for one thing they have a huge beautiful house but it's kind of situated it feels kind of rural like there's a lot of trees around them you don't immediately see neighbors Um, but even so like Charlie goes to this tree house that's like even more into the trees and and a little separate from the house a little more in nature and I was like oh this is like her being drawn more towards nature feels very similar to some other Occulty nature things that we've seen in other movies this season
1: yeah and it's also her living in a miniature version of a real house Mm, again yeah, yeah she's not even living in or spending most of her time in the real house she's wanting to be in this almost a house house so i you know these things just keep layering guys this movie like these motifs are just everywhere
0: like this opening scene is just them getting ready to go to Ellen the grandmother's funeral. And so this is this is quick, but they give you so much like right up front to just kind of like sink your teeth into. And then you get this really weird funeral scene. Oh my gosh, where again
1: rituals are are referenced. Annie is giving, you know, a speech about her her dead mother and you can just tell she does not want to be giving that speech. I can relate Annie. But she does mention her mother's private rituals which again is you know reinforcing that that motif we saw earlier uh, she said that her mother was difficult to read and she said she was stubborn and that if you had different opinions you were wrong she really doesn't have anything nice to say about her mom.
0: I respect that she was like I am her only living family member truly. So she is the one who has to give this um, eulogy. At the same time, I love in this scene that she says that there are so many strange new faces. Um, She wasn't expecting to see so many people show up to this funeral because the funeral is pretty full. There's a lot of people.
1: I miss that. That's a good, good catch.
0: Yeah, so it's because she looks out in the crowd and she sees all these people and then there's a line of people who are, going past the open casket where her mother is and they're, um, they're all taking care to like say goodbye to her mother. And, but she doesn't know any of them. She doesn't, she doesn't know anything about her mother really. In this section of scenes, we do
1: see the father, his name is Steve, talk to Charlie a few times and I thought he was kind of a dick to her. In my notes, as I was watching it, I wrote down, man, he is cold to Charlie I literally wrote the word cold.
0: I kind of got the impression that he's just like dad to a couple of teenagers. So he's kind of generally always over there shit where he's like, you're not getting ready on time. You're not taking your shoes off when you come into the house. Like he's just like not really empathetic to like what's going on. He's just being kind of functional about the situation. But have you noticed that he's nicer to Peter than he is to Charlie? I feel like he is nicer to Peter later in the movie. I I feel like I picked up on him, him at least, if not being nicer, he's at least acknowledging how much pain Peter is in later in the movie. Um, But they are just generally kind of blase towards Charlie in a way that is a little strange. (laughs) I I love the scene where Annie is like talking to her husband kind of in that rush whisper where she's like, should I be sad? I'm not really sad. And it's like, yeah, you had a terrible relationship with your mom. Like you're not going to be sad. Um, but then she goes up and she's saying like night to Charlie. And they have that kind of moment where, where she's like, where Charlie says to her mom, like, who's going to take care of me when you die. And instead of just being like, Oh honey, you're, you're learning about death for the first time. Like a person really close to you just died And now you have fear about death. She's just kind of like, excuse me, I'm your mother. Like I will take care of you. So just this kind of this weird, like not connecting the grief that her daughter has to like her nude found fear of death in a way. It is also
1: really weird though, that Charlie would say who will take care of me because what does that imply? Like what is, annie doing to charlie why does charlie not feel that she is being taken care of
0: is it jumping too far ahead to talk about what's actually happening to charlie here okay so we're kind of going through this a little sequentially but i'm going to jump ahead because we learn later that ellen the grandmother (laughs) is the i don't know like head mistress that summoned a demon Um, that has been inhabiting the body of Charlie. It goes so kind of far into like cult land towards the end of the movie that it feels almost at times like a different movie than the beginning of the movie. Knowing that, and then going back and rewatching this movie and like seeing it a couple of times, you you pick up on all of these things where um, Annie tells Charlie, she's like, oh yeah, when you were a baby, like grandma didn't even want anyone else to hold you. Like, only she could take care of you. She wanted to be the only person to feed you. And we
1: even see that Annie has created this scene of her mother trying to breastfeed Charlie while being breastfed by her own mother. It's really gross.
0: So like you you get all of these like little tidbits where it's like, oh, they went, well, the grandma went out of her way to take care, take care of Charlie. I wondered if she had... Um, influence over Charlie, a more like gender neutral name, like Charlie, because I also was
1: thinking that
0: Haman, the demon is male and prefers male bodies. And so it's like, well, you're not going to get a male body, but you're going to get Charlie and we'll call you Charlie at least.
1: Yeah, I also thought that 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 was what was going on with her name. But I love that they don't tell us they just let us assume it like you don't need to tell us we we figured we can figure that out, and if you don't figure it out the first time, you might get it the next time.
0: There's a lot of payoff on rewatch. The
1: the demon that this is that they're summoning is Paymon. I looked up this demon. Usually, it comes in the form of a male, but with a more female head.
0: Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, which comes into play yeah. later in the movie. Yeah, it does. So they really like touched a lot of little details
0: we see Charlie with her arts and crafts. So she loves drawing. Um, she has all these little quirks that I, I like love that they built into her character, which when you learn that Paymon is, he's like a demon of mischief and he's one of the Lords of hell. As you're going through this movie, you're just like, oh man, this little girl, like she loves chocolate. This little girl cannot get enough chocolate. And she likes like drawing these, disturbing pictures and she makes very disturbing little craft dolls. she cut the head off of a dead
1: bird she did <laughs> with a pair of scissors from her teacher's
0: desk i was like girl you're fucking weird she's such a weirdo but then if you think about it where you're like this little girl has been inhabited by a demon since she was literally born and so how much of this personality is her personality at all? And how much of it is just a confused demon who's in an 11-year-old girl's body?
1: I don't think I stopped to think about the poor demon being confused.
0: Yeah, I think that other other ways from this like kind of opening sequence of learning about, you know, there's Peter, um, the older brother. He's got to be what, like 17 maybe? He looks like a total pothead. He is a total pothead. That's his ritual, right? He's smoking pot all the time. Um, And he's fairly private about it, too. Um, Everyone's got their kind of private things that they like to do. And then the dad, Steve, who's really not given backstory.
1: No, he doesn't really matter, does he?
0: And I have to assume it's because he's not blood-related to this family, that they don't make make a fuss over where he came from, what his goals or motivations are.
1: Yeah. But like I was saying earlier, you know, the, I used the word cold to describe him. I, I really got the sense that he was Annie's antithesis. Like he was her opposite. You know, mm-hmm. he kept talking about how it's cold uh, anytime, anywhere she wanted to sleep or Charlie wanted to sleep and it, you know, it was always outside. Um, he would want to close windows and, and he found it to be cold.
0: Yeah, I feel like he's really trying to bring some degree of like rationality and order. Yeah. To like he's the one who's very militant about like shoes off in the house, put a jacket on if you're going outside. He's very just like trying to keep things in some kind of semblance of order. Yeah. And, um, when things start to fall apart for this family, um, he's still trying to serve that role. There's a moment where he's driving Peter in the back of his car he wasn't paying attention. And he almost like ran, ran a red light. He just breaks down. And I felt like in that moment, I was like, man, he is being everyone's social support, social and emotional support in this movie. And he is not getting anything in return. And he's a human being too. And he has his own breakdown. But then he just kind of like shoves it back down. And like, goes back into the fray when he gets home. And and he's constantly
1: trying to put a kibosh on the cold weather or like the, the the cold feelings that are going on. And you know, jumping ahead he he ends up getting set on fire. I mean he he dies in a fiery death. It's very ironic. And I, I just found it so interesting that uh he is sort of represented by like warmth and you even see it in the the coloring of the movie when you see tony collette a lot she's in cool lighting like her lighting look has like a blue tint it's Mm -hmm. sort of like the demon's tint is like blue i think you'll yeah you'll kind of catch it but they do play with those two colors a lot in this movie when tony collette is sleepwalking it's like very blue and so anyways there's they do a lot of cool like blue and orange back and forth
0: maybe not the biggest but a thing that is kind of like really critical in this first part of the movie for me is when uh Annie post funeral is she kinda looks at her mom's stuff that's all in boxes and she kinda like thumbs through like a book a little bit. Um and all of the books are really like bizarre metaphysical type books. Like they all seem like very kind of like new agey spiritual like type things. And there's a note for her addressed to Annie in one of these books. Like she knew that she was going to be flipping through at least one of these books and left a note for her. And this note says that um, although there will be like many losses basically, but to not despair because it will all be worth it in the end.
1: Yeah. And so you realize that this mother, I mean, you don't realize it when you're watching it, you realize it on a rewatch that this mother has basically set everything in motion for what a, what is about to happen to her family. And it's awful.
0: You realize late, late in the movie when Annie is like actually put all of these pieces together that the person who successfully summons this demon is able to uh, be rewarded with riches. That's what they're rewarded with. Like it's That's not- it. It's not that they get like eternal life. It's that they are rewarded with riches. And I just can't believe that someone could be so greedy and selfish as to let multiple members of their direct family die in pursuit of wealth.
1: In misery.
0: Absolute misery. At the end. Yeah.
1: So after the mother has died, it's... It's sort of funny how this happens, but Annie just sort of reluctantly goes to grief recovery counseling on her own. Um, She doesn't seem like she really wants to do it, but she goes. And we do meet this character named Joni who um, isn't really part of the story yet, but we do see her in, in the group therapy. But Annie says that she is being blamed. And the way she says it, it makes it sound like she's being actively blamed. Which we haven't heard it all yet happen. Nobody has said, you know, it's your fault that your mother is dead. It's your fault that Charlie's allergic to nuts. Anything. Like, nothing's been her fault. That was interesting. And I think you don't really really quite get why she's feeling this way until you've seen the movie the whole way through.
0: It, to me, re- reads in, in this scene that she is very Paranoid. She's very paranoid that there's something, something wrong, something big um, that she feels culpable for, um, but doesn't understand what to do with that. She talks about her family history in this really weird, detached way where she says, you know, my mother had a hard life. My mother had dissociative identity disorder. Um, And then later in life, she had just like totally... Um, devastating dementia her father starved himself to death her brother was schizophrenic and then suicidal and like she talks about this as like it's only happened to her mother and it's she doesn't connect herself to it she's not like my father starved himself to death and then I suffered from that or my brother hung himself and then I suffered from that she's just like oh these things happened to my mom and Um, And then it was like her mom happened to her and she had a a very like fraught relationship with her mom when her kids were born um, and then eventually kind of brought her back in. And so it's only like she's talking about her family's relationship through her mother. She doesn't talk about it as though she has her own direct relationship with the rest of her family.
1: Yeah. It's almost like she can just tell that she's being blamed for something deep inside of her, something existential that she doesn't understand yet because they ask her, you know, what are you being blamed for? And she doesn't even know. It just feels like she is feeling this sense of doom. And I think that's such a really cool scene to kind of pivot us into the next, uh, I would say at this point, maybe act in the movie or the next big moment in the movie. So now we're at the Charlie dies
0: part. We are at the Charlie Dies Mar and this whole this whole scene makes me so anxious. It makes me so anxious to watch it. Thinking about it makes me anxious. Like every part of it, top to bottom, is just dread.
1: This is one of my most favorite scenes of all time. Right, right after it happens. I, I think we're talking about two different scenes, but like collectively like the scene of the death. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So... I think that when – so Peter's forced to take Charlie to a party. He says it's a school party, but it's – We all know
1: what it is.
0: It's a party party. And he takes his little baby sister, his little weirdo sister to this party. And, like, I feel so bad for Charlie because – Me too. She's just going to sit there, and he's like, go draw or something because I got to go smoke pot with this hot girl. Like (laughs) – And just the fact that he leaves, he leaves her on her own. And he's like, it's a birthday party. Go get some cake. And he's just like not paying attention to her. Just like every part of this, you're just like, oh my God, something terrible is going to happen.
1: We see this girl just like ferociously like chopping up walnuts, chopping up walnuts. And it's kind of like it's a reminder of her, her allergy. And he tells her to go eat some chocolate cake which is going to have the goddamn
0: walnuts in it. He's not paying attention at all. And he goes off. He tells her he's going to be quick. She eats cake. And then she's sitting and she's drawing. She's drawing on the couch and progressively, you know, she can't breathe. And so finally she goes and finds him. And you almost think that something good is going to happen. Because even though he's stoned, he recognizes that there's something wrong with her. And he... Picks her up and he runs out of the party with her and puts her in the car. And he's like, it's okay. We're just going to get you to a hospital. He's reacting. He's doing the thing until he doesn't.
1: I wasn't sure what, how it was going to end. I, I was like, they're not going to kill Charlie. Like, why would they? She's a little girl. They don't do that. Like, that doesn't happen. When he swerved, I was not expecting her head to get chopped off. I was expecting her to have like flown out the window or something.
0: There was no way to predict that this is what was going to happen. And I think it's one of the like most genuinely surprising things I've seen in a movie in a really long time. Like I can't think of anything more surprising than Peter swerving to miss the deer in the road and he swerves and Charlie gets decapitated when he swerves near a telephone pole.
1: She is sticking her head out the window to try and breathe and instead gets her head chopped off. But we don't actually know that yet as an audience. We just know something bad happened.
0: You hear this sickening smack sound and he immediately pulls over the car and then it's just like multiple moments of him just sitting. You just
1: linger on it.
0: It's like a mix of like denial and fear where he's like, if I just don't look, then maybe it didn't happen. The whole thing is so horrible.
1: Oh, I just like freeze right there. When this happens, I freeze and I'm like, "I I don't know what to do. You have to get her out of the road. You have to scoop her up. But like, that's too horrifying to think about. And you're 17, you know.
0: The scene of him driving home and just parking the car, going inside, laying in bed fully clothed, and just waiting until morning. Such a good representation of the absolute shock and horror that you would feel experiencing something like that. And
1: we cut to a shot of his face in bed in the morning, listening to his mother get ready for her day, go out to the car And just scream like a fucking banshee because she sees her daughter's headless body in the backseat of the car. And that's when they finally show us the head. That's when we know what happened.
0: It is a decapitated girl's head on the side of a highway, an active highway. There are cars on this highway and it is swarmed with ants. And this is one of those scenes that we talked about earlier where it just like it it waits a beat. It it lets you really, really it look takes at it. That in. <laughs> it makes you look at it before it goes away. <laughs> so after this, it's really interesting
1: what happens to Peter. He is just like basically becomes a ghost in his own house. You know, like he never speaks. You always see him behind like some glass or a door or something
0: he's terrified like it you can feel that he just feels like unwelcome in his own house like he's afraid to go inside he like has to work up the nerve to like go back into his house like and he like kind of slinks around or he tries not to talk and just like make himself like totally invisible it's really sad because you know that he's processing this horrible tragedy at the same time as the rest of his family is, but his mom, like she thinks about going back to um, her grief counseling. Joni asks her um, what happened. And she said, my daughter was killed. She doesn't say my daughter died. She said, my daughter was killed. Mm-hmm. Her son, and the amount of weight she puts on that. And yeah. when it was an accident, it was an accident. And yeah, this family just like, it just disintegrates with Charlie's death.
1: We are now starting to see more of Joni at this point. Joni has gradually been spending more and more screen time with Annie.
0: Annie is uh, kind of throwing herself into her work in what feels like a very unhealthy way. She makes a miniature of the accident where Charlie was decapitated and her husband is even like, you can't do this. Like, you can't make this. And she's like, what? I'm being a neutral observer of the accident. And it's like, why are you distancing yourself from this? Why are you putting your art in between you and your grief? Like, that doesn't feel healthy.
1: I, I felt that this was a way for her to channel her grief. Like, to me, it seemed like she she's taking this opportunity to channel her grief and ignoring whatever would be helpful to her son to channel his grief, like she kind of just leaves him to fend for himself.
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, she and does.
1: I just yeah, I feel like this is her processing without having to deal with anybody else processing.
0: Yeah, I guess that I felt like her her using the miniatures and claiming that she was being an objective observer of the accident kind of trying to maybe use her art for her grief as maybe a way to process it. But she has so much anger in her. I felt it feels like she has like such an an enormous amount of grief, but her anger almost eclipses it with the way she's taking it out on Peter.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not a good solution, but
0: I feel (laughs) like it's the solution she's using. (laughs) <laughs> one of my one of my notes is like this whole family needs to be in family therapy like after <laughs> the, that fraught dinner scene where it's like the mom is just so tense like everything is so tense and horrible you're just like you can't tell if she's going to start screaming or if she's going to throw something, but you just know something's going to happen. This movie is so good. at just like really playing up the like anxiety and like dread in this household. Um, And it made me mad that the dad wasn't willing to like intervene more when obviously his wife is suffering so much. And he's not just like, Hey, you seem like you're, spiraling out of control and maybe we need to get you some help like he doesn't he doesn't do that He just kind of like hey no more yelling you two (laughs) he just kind of like plays referee a little bit I love how he just
1: pats his son on the hand after all of that is over (laughs) and just moves on
0: there's like no emotional warmth from him towards his family yeah you're right. he is cold like there's not just not like I don't know he doesn't have that degree of like compassion for his family in the same way but then like I said earlier he I think that he's maybe trying to keep it together because no one else can keep it together
1: we do get to see some of her mania which I love uh when she's sleepwalking and goes to Peter's room and sees him covered like with ants like just the way we just saw the head covered in ants then she wakes up from that and has like another dream this is like an inception moment she has like a dream within a dream tells peter she never wanted to be his mother and that she tried to miscarry and she dreams within this dream because she's actually dreaming this too about lighting him on fire she's crazy
0: (laughs) this is such a crazy dream sequence man the sleepwalking thing like what is up with annie because she said that A few years ago that she woke up from a sleepwalking session and she had doused both of her children and herself in lighter fluid and woke herself up as she was striking the match. She almost killed her family during a sleepwalking session. Isn't that insane? Can you imagine waking up to that? She doesn't apologize. She doesn't ever say that she's sorry for almost killing her family or for scaring them or for traumatizing them. She's just like, what? I was sleepwalking. What am I supposed to do? Like how, how am I supposed to control that? Like the way she's reacting about it is very much like, it's not my fault that I did this terrible thing. It was an accident. I was just sleepwalking, but she doesn't relay that same degree of even sympathy towards Peter when his terrible accident you know like it was an accident that charlie died so she has this kind of hypocritical view towards like what she views as accidental in her case she doesn't need to apologize for but she won't accept any kind of apology because it's never enough from peter she is the one that insists
1: that Charlie go to this party with Peter and Charlie didn't want to go. Charlie was doing her own thing. And she drags Charlie inside and says, you're going to this thing with Peter. And Peter points this out to her at dinner. And I'm like, yeah, that's true. Like you got to answer for that. If you're going to yell at your son like this.
0: Joni has been slyly edging her way into this family. um, And she's real good at it. She's really good at kind of getting her hooks into Annie.
1: It does feel really natural the way it happens.
0: There's just so many like moments in this movie where I'm just like, oh, I was not expecting it to go in this direction. And I think that one of those moments with Joni is where she convinces Annie to come to her house for a seance.
1: Yeah, I, I would
0: have like immediately laughed and been like, no, thanks. I'm no, like, I'm good. But Annie's desperate and she likes Joni. She trusts Joni because Joni kind of one-ups her on the tragedy front. And so Annie is like, other people have it worse than me. And she's able to make her way through with this seance stuff. So I guess I'll go. She goes to Joni's apartment and they do this seance where she says that she's calling forth her grandson. It moves the, the cup. Annie is like, get me the fuck out of here. I don't want to do this. But
1: Joni, Joni does eventually give her the tools for her to do it on her own. So Annie kind of brings it home and they do a family seance that Annie leads.
0: It feels like Annie has totally lost the plot. It's like she has gone completely crazy. She wakes up Peter and is like, Peter, you have to wake up and you have to in the living room right now. And she goes and wakes up her husband and she's like, you have to come to the living room right now. And she's so manic and so just like up. And she's like, we're going to do a seance.
1: Again, I would just be like, no, no, <laughs> like, this is not happening.
0: The thing that breaks my heart in this scene is that Peter is so, seems so desperate for any type of positive attention at all from his mother. Mm-hmm. That he's like... Yes, I'll do it with you,. Mm-hmm. And she's like, "Yes, yes, okay, okay. And it's and I was like, the only reason why Peter is doing this is because his mom seems happy about something, and so he's willing to play along, even if it even if it is just part of her mania right now, yeah, and it seems like he is mildly curious about seeing Charlie again. I feel like the first like true. Supernatural thing we see is the seance at Joni's. And then it really ramps up with the family seance. They end up summoning Charlie and Annie like kind of absorbs Charlie's
1: soul and turns into like Charlie freak as a demon as Charlie, whatever it is in there. Right. And she's like freaking out because now she's also inside of her mother and can't see her mother really freaks the fuck out of the whole family. It's really funny.
0: And they're not up for it. They're not up for dealing with this demon.
1: They are not a family unit in this moment. They are very fractured.
0: Oh, yeah. And it just, you know, the dad is like, I'm done here. He can't, he can't, (laughs) he cannot hang with this seance. Peter's super freaked out because he's been kind of losing it this whole time anyway. Yeah. And really quick. We've also seen this other thing start to happen in the movie.
1: and I we haven't touched on it yet, but there's like a glowing blue rectangle or you know, glowing blue light that will kind of hone in on things that that the characters will see. And that's been happening in this room, the seance as well. And I'm not sure what that is, but it's definitely otherworldly.
0: I assumed it was some kind of projection from Paymon or potentially, the occultists conjuring something Mm. to try and draw their attention or just kind of guide them to where they need to be or look. Throughout the movie, the occultists are just kind of ambiently in the background of some scenes. Yeah.
1: They're the people that Peter will sometimes see talking to him and Charlie will see. Nobody else can hear them.
0: Yeah. And they're the people from the funeral.
1: Isn't that terrifying?
0: It's so terrifying. So it's like, if you look at all the people who are at the funeral and then there's this like awful scene where it's, it's quick, but it shows like a, an establishing shot of their house at night. And it's very quick, but if you look, there's about a dozen people hiding in the shadows outside of the house. It's horrifying. It's so creepy. And so you're just like, oh, this house is surrounded at all times by these people who are just waiting for their moment.
1: Yes, Kate. And this is a motif I also haven't brought up yet. But the feeling of always being watched is constant in this movie. You know, there's these miniatures with scenes set up to be examined. Um, you'll see these shadowy figures in, in the darkness in the background. It's so creepy. Uh, there's a there's a specific diorama that Annie sets up of her mother just standing in a doorway looking in at her sleeping.
0: And it's mirrored too because then we get really similar shots of Annie standing over Peter's bed or Peter standing in a door frame. Like we get like repetitions of this like people standing over other people and watching them and like looking at them and really once we get to the point of the family seance the tension just keeps getting dialed up until the movie ends it's just it's all climax we're just seeing
1: a lot of like you said these symbols playing up we see more drawings we see pictures of the crying father or peter with his eyes crossed out we see uh when annie tries to burn the book of drawings that that connects her to Charlie. She's trying to save her family. She she needs this séancey shit to go away so that her family can move on. Annie catches
0: fire. Like she is connected to this book. There's some part of Charlie or Payman that's connected to this and it did feel like it was going to be a turning point for Annie to burn the book herself, where she was like, I just need to get rid of this. And she can't. And so she tries to be logical. And she's like, I can't burn this book because it's gonna burn me. So I'll get my husband to burn the book for me. Yeah. And and I
1: this is where I was like, okay, so we do know that Annie is not actively trying to kill her family or hurt them like she she wants to fix this like I think I felt like that was what she felt was her best move and it obviously isn't the right move but I felt like okay she's trying right here
0: you know post seance she's like that wasn't what I wanted she didn't want Charlie in that way she wanted the like happy seance that Joni had. She wanted that experience. She didn't get that experience. She like realizes that she's gone too far. She realizes who Joni really is. She goes through the, she doesn't go through her mom's stuff earlier in the movie. I don't understand why she didn't go through any of her mom's stuff until this point in the movie when she actually learns who Joni is and what's been going on with her mom. I think she
1: just wasn't interested in her mom's stuff. I feel like, I would react the same way doing something like that with my mom's stuff. But um, I think she goes back, doesn't, does she see the symbol? Just think back to it and kind of digs deeper.
0: Yeah. She sees the symbol on a photo album and she flips through the photo album and sees pictures of her mom with Joni. (laughs) And with all these other people and they're like her witchcraft. And it's like, Hey, who does that? Who has time for that? And like, she like put it in a box for her daughter and was just like, yeah, you're going to see this one day. But by the time you see this, your whole family is probably going to be dead. Like she just is very confident in how she left these boxes for Annie. That's harsh. Yeah. It's not great. The end of this movie goes so batshit crazy. For the whole end of the movie,
1: yeah, this part I uh, I call how the turntables because it's it's when Annie has Steve throw the book in the fire, but he just catches fire. I know, and it's horrible. <laughs> it just goes totally wrong. And I was what I wrote down was, "Bet you're not cold anymore, are you, Steve?" <laughs> and she finally finally finds her own warmth in the cold again outside
0: in the treehouse eventually after cutting off her own head with yeah. the metal wire oh my god <laughs> yeah it's oh, the sequence of peter waking up in his bed and his mom on the ceiling watching him so this is the like of like everyone watching right there's always yep. someone watching somewhere and so his mom just like silently crawling along the ceiling watching him it's unnerving Ugh, it's horrible it's really bad and I just like the whole scene and her just like following him around the house and then eventually like in a full out chase and he he escapes to the attic where, oh my gosh, we totally missed this plot point, which is where <laughs> Ellen, the grandma's body is. Had been dug up and oh yeah, the attic had been stored. <laughs> <in the attic laughs> How did we miss that for the whole duration of the movie? And they and they're like complaining kind of casually throughout the movie about like, man, this house is like really stuffy. Like this house kind of smells like funky. Yeah, and then you find yeah. out because Grandma's corpse is in the attic.
1: Yeah, we do see flies every so often, and and above her body, above her body is the symbol again. That yeah. yeah. we did miss that but but it's there it's all
0: right yeah he's up in the attic and his mom you think she's banging you think she's like knocking on the attic to let her in it's her like possessed banging her head against the door and like i just so fast i remember it being like whoa like there's just so much where you're like i did not expect that yes
1: It's shocking. It's shocking. And he's screaming, mommy, mommy. And I and I remember yelling across the room, uh, you know, you know, guys don't usually do that. Guys don't say mommy unless they're like desperate. Like he's
0: terrified. They have
1: nothing else. Yeah.
0: And again with the heads, we see so much about heads in this movie. So she cuts off she cuts off her own head with piano wire.
1: Without um, saying a damn word.
0: <laughs> no, she just does it. She just stares that in. And we do find out that uh, the grandma's head is also removed. So all three of our women in this movie do lose their heads. It's crazy. It is. And I think ties in really nicely with your point that Paimon is a male demon who often has a female head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's so, so interesting. really good tie-in. So the ritual is now entering completion.
1: Her her body floats away to the treehouse where it meets up with the grandmother's headless body, and Charlie's head is is upon this like throne. Somebody else's body. I, I forget what the body is made out of. Is it straw or something? Peter follows. They all go up into this treehouse, and it's it's all of their friends. <laughs> It's all of Ellen's friends, naked.
0: Yeah, there's so many naked people at the end of this movie. Very, like, classic cult. The treehouse is lit up nice and red. Um, We've got Charlie's head. And then we've got the mom and Ellen's headless bodies are posed in, like, a prayer position. Uh, They crown Peter because they have effectively pulled the spirit into... Into Peter's body. He's the
1: new, what, king? King of the world?
0: I guess so. What does a demon even do in a human's body? Like, that's the thing that I don't know.
1: (laughs) I don't know either. It seems like it'd be cooler to just be a demon.
0: I know. Like, what benefit is there for a demon to inhabit a human's body? It seems very inconvenient.
1: I thought so too. But for some reason, they want to do it. You know, I love the music in this section of the movie, the end, the it's like, it's like Wagner, but reimagined or something. It's so creepy. It sounds like it's underwater and it's just really beautiful. I love it so much. I love the end sequence of this movie.
0: The ending's really good with their chant too, their devil chant. Hail payment. <laughs> say it over and over until it goes to black. When I first watched this movie, I was really expecting them to either cut out Peter's eyes or blind Peter in some way.
1: Yeah, they did reference his eyes being messed up at some point in the movie.
0: Yeah, they had like a couple scenes. So they had in one of Charlie's drawings, she drew a bunch of drawings of him in a row with his eyes X'ed out. And then there was a, a picture of him where his eyes were crossed out. And so I was like, this guy's not getting out of this movie with his eyes.
1: <laughs> yeah, I thought it was going to be like a Jeepers creeper situation, but it wasn't.
0: No, they let him keep his eyes. I really, I really like this movie. I love how you think it's going to be a movie about a family's inability to process trauma and how you can have these kind of generational cycles of mental illness and abuse. And And it's like, no, it's just about demons. (laughs) It's just about demons. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. I like how literal it is. It's like, oh yeah, this is an actual horror movie. And I do feel like the last 40 minutes of this movie are truly horrifying. Like there are horrifying moments earlier in the movie, of course, too, but it's like, jump scary tense awful horror movie at the end there
1: they are and I'll be honest with you there's a lot of things that we talked about just right now that I hadn't even thought of that really creeped me out just talking about so (laughs) I'd say that was pretty good
0: yeah I um I don't get really creeped out by movies but this one while watching it I do find very creepy there's so much just layered into it especially if you're like Oh, I'm going to watch this movie and I'm going to try and look for any background character who might be staring at them or any background character who might be hiding, um, you know, in a shadow or in the darkness or something. And it's like a lot. It's it's like it's really unnerving to see like how often that actually comes up in this movie. What do you think? Ten Headless Pigeons out of ten? Uh, yes, definitely. This is a great movie. Everyone should watch this movie. so Kate what is our question of the episode our question of the episode is what is your favorite family heirloom
1: Ooh, that's a hard one I can think of something you want me to go first
0: sure yeah you go first
1: okay so it hasn't been passed down very long or really at all yet but I it's something I do plan on passing down my grandmother had a show saddle that meant a lot to her. It was for a Western saddle for her quarter horse. And it was made out of silver. And she took really good care of it. And she was really proud of her very like beautiful leather and silver saddle. She died and obviously I don't have a horse. <laughs> but I do remember how important that was to her. So I uh, kept the nameplate on the back with her name on it that's made out of silver and um, I'm gonna have it mounted on some leather and like hang it on the wall
0: I like that that's so much nicer than like I don't know any of the things passed down in in this family that we just watched
1: just misery
0: just absolute horrible misery my family heirloom I would have to say my uh, great-grandmother collected teacups Um, she loved to collect these like China teacups and little saucers and my grandma had them for a long time and eventually gave them to me and I have been lugging them around. Um, (laughs) I brought them, it's this big, I have this big tub full of like carefully wrapped teacups and saucers that are who knows how old at this point. But I don't, I don't want to get rid of them. I kind of love them. I'm not like a, like a frilly, like teacup kind of person. And I don't, I'm sure you can you can like eat and drink out of them, but they definitely felt like when I received them that they were more kind of like display type China, mm-hmm. than, like eating or drinking China. Um, and so I do want to eventually figure out a way to display these teacups in a way that doesn't feel too like great grandma's China hutch kind of display. You know what I mean? <laughs>
1: next time I come over we should do a fancy tea party
0: oh yes they're very pretty and they're very like delicate and like nice they're probably like shattered to a million pieces in my garage but um that's not true they're very well taken care of um (laughs) in case my grandma's listening to this hereditary podcast yeah I think family heirlooms are interesting especially for I don't know if it's like our our generation in particular or what but I feel like heirlooms are more common in some families than others. My grandma has a lot of heirlooms. Um, She has a lot of her mom's stuff and a lot of her grandmother's stuff that she's kept and kind of passed on. Some of my friends have like some of their family's stuff, like maybe jewelry or maybe like a, a lamp or something, but it's not really like people pass on like furniture like they used to.
1: Yeah. And I did have to give up some of my grandma's furniture that I had, had saved you know, because I moved so many times, I just I couldn't keep it, which was really sad. So I had to learn to really like, put a lot of thought into the things that I want to save because I just don't have room.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that happens too. We, we don't have the the same like house space. But we are doing question of the episode here because if you've been listening along all season, or maybe this is your first episode of the season you're tuning into, We are doing a promo where if you listen to the episode, you will, of course, hear the question, like the question we just asked, what's your favorite family heirloom? And you should go to the uh, episode post on our Instagram page, like and share the post, and then uh, put your answer to this question in a comment and we will ship you a sticker totally for free. Um, And the sticker will be themed Um, after this episode and we're doing that for every single episode of the season this promo is good from you know the episode where we started all the way up until the last episode of the season so you've got until mid-december to catch up on all these episodes answer all the questions get all nine stickers plus a bonus 10th completion sticker you gotta do it it's gonna be great i think kate said all of it so that's (laughs) it <laughs> yeah, Megan's not allowed to talk. <laughs> See you
1: guys next time.
0: See ya. This was Not Quite Dead. Check out our other episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at Not Quite Dead Podcast. And follow our blog for bonus content at notquitedeadpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Happy watching. Saw her drawing me last week. Oh, yeah? Yeah. She made me look retarded. Yeah, that's Charlie.